Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, what is the most germ-laden thing in your kitchen? Researchers in the U.S., including a Canadian, set out to find out, and the answer, well, it surprised even them. What could it be? Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland joins us to talk about her trip to Thailand, where she went to dig into the murder of a high-profile gangster with long ties to organize crime in B.C. and look into the two former Canadian Armed Forces members suspected of carrying out the hit. But first, on the third anniversary of the first presumed case of COVID-19 in this country, we look at the ongoing impact of long COVID and how the medical community is working to try to figure out more about who's getting it, why, how to recognize it, and how to treat it. And Ontario's former health minister, Christine Elliott, joins us to share what it was like to announce that first case and everything that ensued. Long COVID is what we're talking about this half hour. You know, three years ago, we announced our first case of COVID. Today, we're still trying to figure out exactly what the long-term impacts of the virus are. An estimated 1.4 million people in this country suffer from long COVID. We believe symptoms can include fatigue, depression, anxiety, shortness of breath, sleep disturbance, heart palpitations. It goes on. Uh, consequences can be life-altering, long-lasting. 47% of adults with long COVID in Canada experienced symptoms for more than a year, a year or more. And uh, 21% said their symptoms often are always limited, their daily activities. We spoke to Dr. Dr. Anne Berer, uh, who from Montreal, hardworking, extremely active physician before she got COVID while caring for patients in a senior's home in December 2020. We spoke to her about uh, the condition on the show last year. You can hear the trouble she has finding enough breath to talk. When I was infected in late December 2020, I thought I'd be over it in 10 days. But I am among the ones who never recovered. Progressively, some symptoms have been a bit better, but most of it, unfortunately, is still there now. Every day... I would say is made of trying to prioritize on what's most important to do and really understand that if I push just a little too much, I'll be out for many days. Dr. Amber, a doctor, a doctor, and that's when you can just hear the kind of impact it's had on her, how, how debilitating it is. Kieran Quinn is an assistant professor in the University of Toronto's Department of Medicine and a clinician scientist studying long COVID. He joins me now from Toronto. Kieran, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's amazing to think that it's been three years now since our first uh, presumptive uh, COVID case in Canada, in Ontario. Uh, we would do nothing about what, long, what, you know, what the long-term effects of COVID-19 could be. Uh, and, and even now, three years later, we're still really finding our way, aren't we? Absolutely. It's not a, an anniversary that I think any of us want to celebrate, but certainly it's been a long, we've come a long way in the last three years. And I really think it's important what the uh, patient and community advocacy groups have done to raise awareness for long COVID. Uh, and they've just you know spent tireless hours trying to advocate for themselves, which is just incredible. Uh, but you're right. You're right in saying that we have a lot more understanding uh, than we did uh, about what long COVID is and how we help people with it. Uh, and yet at the same time, there's an enormous amount of work ahead of us to, to continue to support these individuals. What do we know now that we didn't know even a year ago about sort of trying to better narrow down what the symptoms are, um, how many people are suffering from them, how to recognize it? First, we've come up with a definition, uh, at least one that's continuing to evolve, but it's a starting point. Um, So the World Health Organization defines long COVID as somebody who develops persistent or lingering symptoms three months after a suspected or confirmed infection with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and that those symptoms have lasted for two months and are not due to uh, an alternate cause, like an underlying health condition that you've already had, for example. Secondly, um, we've characterized a lot about what do those symptoms look like, and there's more than 100, some people would say more than 200 symptoms that people can uh, have reported with long COVID. And we're just starting to figure out at least some of the initial treatments and how to help people. So a lot of uh, research has been done to advance the knowledge. And as I said before, there's still a lot ahead of us to help figure all this out. Do we have a better idea of, of what's causing it? What exactly is going on medically when it comes to these those who suffer from long-term syndromes, uh, especially since many people don't, right? 
Uh, absolutely. Um, I think we've we've made some major headway into at least some of the proposed causes underlying it all. There are sort of four working theories, one around dysregulated or abnormal uncontrolled inflammation, second theory around viral reservoirs so that the pieces or the entire virus might be sort of hidden in certain parts of our body and that can cause ongoing symptoms. A third one is the concept of autoimmunity. So, you know, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis exist, and we think there might be an element of autoimmune disease where our immune system attacks our own body that's triggered by the initial COVID infection. And lastly, this idea of microclotting that these tiny, tiny little blood clots that are not picked up by our usual tests to look for larger blood clots may be causing damage and symptoms elsewhere. The the thing is, is that we're not still not sure if long COVID is one thing or perhaps a combination or several different types of conditions all under one larger umbrella. And so that's where we're still trying to sort out what's causing it, which will give us better targets uh, for treatment in the future. Yeah, I guess just by reading around uh, even today, we don't really have a set definition. I mean, as you mentioned, the World Health Organization has a set definition of what the symptoms of long COVID are, but it feels like we haven't really quite figured out exactly what it is. I mean, it means many different things to different people who are suffering through different symptoms. Certainly, there there is no globally accepted definition. Many countries and health systems have adopted that World Health Organization uh, definition, but that in and of itself isn't. Uh, we haven't figured out how accurate that that is. You know, so if I'm a doctor trying to diagnose somebody, we don't know how many people that definition might pick up or might miss uh, who also have the same underlying problem. Uh, and I should say that the World Health Organization is currently evolving that definition. So it will likely change in the near future as our understanding of the post-COVID condition or long COVID evolves. And no treatments as of yet. I mean, you've talked about how we're figuring out how to better treat the symptoms, but we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of treatments for it just yet. Unfortunately not. Um, so there, there are no approved treatments around the world that actually get at the underlying causes and improve the quality of life of people with long COVID. Right now, our treatments are limited to what we would call supportive measures. So medications and other interventions aimed at making people's symptoms less burdensome or less bothersome. I don't want that to be a, a message of no hope because there is an enormous amount of research in Canada and around the world going on trying to find new treatments. For example, we are just about to launch a clinical trial here in Toronto that's going to be at multiple centers across the country where we're testing several different therapies to try to improve the quality of life of people. So there's lots going on and there is hope for the future. Research, unfortunately, takes time, but it needs to be done properly and safely. And at least in this case, um, I mean, so many different conditions, the research uh, isn't isn't there. This one, at least it feels like there is a concerted effort to try to come up with solutions. Concerted effort is the right word. We, I'm part of now a national network across Canada of incredibly smart and talented people who are all passionate about trying to improve care and recognition of people with long COVID. And that includes many people with lived experience who are suffering with long COVID. So they help inform our work and also contribute to the research directly. So we're hoping that by coming together, collaborating and sharing our collective wisdom, we can accelerate solutions and, and find treatments faster uh, because it really is a race against time with the number of people we hear that are suffering out there with it. This has been a tough one, right? A lot of patients don't know what they have. They go to get diagnosed. Doctors don't know what they're looking at. And there's still a bit of confusion out there. And of course, that leaves the patient in a tough spot. Yeah, Ben, there's actually two points I want to touch on that you just made there. One is around the patient experience. And certainly, there's been a lot of distressing stories in the people that I've looked after and from my colleagues around people feeling like their healthcare providers haven't listened to them or validated their experiences. They've often felt dismissed. And so I think there's a lot of work and probably one of the most important things that we can do as healthcare providers today is to simply take the time to listen to a person and validate their experiences as real, regardless of the fact that many people's diagnostic tests for long COVID are come back normal. That does not mean that what they're experiencing isn't real. It just means we don't have a test to figure out or diagnose exactly what they've got. 
The second point is around a diagnostic code. And I'm really thankful that in Ontario, the Ministry of Health took a big step forward in creating a new diagnostic code specifically for long COVID. It sounds like a simple exercise, but it's actually an enormous amount of work and very difficult to implement in a healthcare system. That will allow us as clinicians to diagnose people and assign them a diagnosis that has implications for insurance purposes. And really from a research standpoint, allows us to identify people with long COVID in our population level data sets to understand what kind of health care they're using so we can figure out where the gaps are uh, to improve care overall. So still trying to gather that data so we know exactly what the picture looks like, because I gather that's also a problem. We don't know exactly what's going on out there just yet. That's right. I mean, there has been, it's a new disease and uh, it's a new disease that's come up and only been recognized, you know, in the last little while. So it takes time to be able to study this, especially if you want to study everybody who has it in the in the province or the country. And for, for certain examples, that takes time for that data to be collected uh, rather than simply doing it on sort of very small uh, samples of people who may look different than other people with long COVID and not be representative. How do you see this in the grand scheme of things? Because I, I, you know, I think back to other things over the years that have come up and have been dismissed, you know, and this certainly isn't being dismissed, but I think of things like chronic fatigue syndrome, right? Where people are like, ah, is it real? Right. And I think there is a sense out there. And I, I imagine that's part of the frustration with certain, for certain patients that not everyone is convinced that this is what the patient thinks it is. And, and that can be challenging when it comes, if you're not feeling well, you're not feeling right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the helpful things that's come from all of this research is that people recognize or increasingly recognizing that long COVID is a real thing. um, And that's a big step forward in, in and of itself. There's still a lot of uncertainty, though, about how big a problem it is or how severely affected, you know, people are by it. That's where the research still needs to to move forward to to be able to figure all that out. But it starts with just acknowledging that it's a real thing. And I think we've done a better job of that of late. The the other thing to that we need to do is to be better about communicating to people what's going on in the background, that, that there is a lot of work. There's work from government. There's work from researchers. There's work from clinicians just trying to figure out how to make things better. And I think we can probably do a better job of letting people out there know that that's going on so they don't feel like like that things might be hopeless. Yeah, because so much of the debate, I guess, is about COVID itself, right? When you, when you, you know, the actual, the sort of uh, immediate impacts of of different different strains of the virus and so on, and less a little bit. We talk less about long COVID, although I see lots of reporting on it, but you know, not as much as you know the new variant, for instance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's again another point about uncertainty. We we're not certain about how much, uh, you know, how many people will develop long COVID with these emerging variants and do variants influence the the likelihood that somebody is going to get long COVID. Just back to your prior point about, you know, previous conditions like chronic fatigue or myalgic encephalomyelitis, as it's called now, this idea of post-viral or post-infectious syndromes is not a new one, but I think it's finally getting the attention it deserves because so many people, literally millions of people have been infected with COVID. So hundreds of thousands of people around the world uh, are developing long COVID as a result. And so the magnitude of that problem is just so much bigger than the other conditions, which which gives it a bit more limelight, uh, but does not mean that it's any more or less important. Oh, and it's interesting that as we, um, I mean, as a collective, we seem to be suffering less from the impacts of a COVID infection. But the specter of long COVID is still very much there. And it feels the long-term impacts of it may be more severe in some cases than the short-term impacts. The effects and the long-term effects, as you say, you know, that's what we are really worried about and thinking about health policy. It's not just a health system impact. The most number of people who have been infected with COVID are people in the primes of their lives, you know, working age uh, adults with families and caregivers, you know, their dependents who people, their parents they're looking after. So the the economic and health system impacts stand the potential to be quite large. And I think we're trying to be proactive and planning for that in the setting of imperfect evidence. Here in Quinn, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. What a great discussion. And it was three years ago today that the pandemic officially arrived in this country. On January 25th, 2020, the first presumptive case of what would later be called COVID-19 
was reported in Toronto. It involved a man in his 50s who traveled to Wuhan in China. On that day, front and center was Ontario's health minister, Christine Elliott, a senior member of Doug Ford's government, in power a little over 18 months at that point. Here is Elliott, back on January 5th, 2020. The patient was detected and immediately put in isolation. Lab tests were conducted, and at the earliest signs of a presumptive positive case, Toronto Public Health launched extensive case and contact management to prevent and control further spread of the infection. It's amazing to think that was only three years ago. It feels both much, much more recent and much, much further away. It was hard for them, of course, hard for her to let alone the rest of us, to picture what exactly was about to happen. Uh, In many ways, we're still trying to figure out, uh, at its essence, a global health emergency, a pandemic unlike anything seen in a century, perhaps ever, given the mobility of the modern age, sickness, deaths, some 50,000 deaths attributed to COVID in Canada alone now. So much change. I mean, isolation, remote work, remote, remote schooling, mandates, vaccines, all of it just three years ago. In just in the last three years. But what was it like to have to make those tough calls? What was it like to be there on that first day? Um, you know, it, it's amazing to look back at all that's happened. But we wanted to find out exactly what it was like to be there on day one and to look ahead at what was going to happen to make those really tough calls that health ministers across this country had to make. Joining me now is former Ontario Health Minister uh, Christine Elliott, who is now Health Law Counsel with Faskin Law in Toronto. Thank you for your time. Pleasure to join you, Ben. Thank you. Three years goes by. Some, somehow it feels like it's gone by in a flash and gone by very slowly all at once. But uh, take me back to that day three years ago. I mean, you were right right at the, right in the room when it happened and then had to go out and face the public to talk about it. It must have been uh, a daunting moment. Well, it was. Um, We certainly were watching very carefully what was happening around the world, and we knew that it was a matter of time before we had our first COVID case in Ontario. And so our hospitals were prepared for it. I think that they had learned a lot through the SARS problem some years ago, uh, how they needed to approach patients very carefully with proper protective equipment and so on so that they could be safe. But it was still a big upset, of course, when we had our first um, COVID case in Ontario. And I I actually do remember it very well because I heard about it on the day that I was to attend the um, the Dragon Ball in Toronto, which is a right. very event for the Lunar New Year. Mm-hmm. And I ended up not going that evening because I thought I, I was working. <laughs> And, and I thought that it was inappropriate to for me to be seen sort of out at a big social event when our health system was undergoing such a difficult time. So so I didn't attend and I worked and kept on working for the next three years. Yeah, yeah, it never did. It never did quiet down at all. It must be, I mean, in your position, and, and I know that having watched it sort of move around the world, we all knew it was coming. Uh, certainly in Ontario or Toronto specifically, there was always a bit of a different uh, lens because of SARS. I mean, I remember covering SARS back when it was uh, back when Toronto lived through it. So there was a slightly different perspective there. But ultimately, you have to look and see if you have your emergency preparedness plan ready. And that's that's that can be a challenge to see if it's up to scratch, considering what we thought was coming. Well, yes, we did as much preparation as we were able. But one unfortunate part was the fact that we inherited uh, from several years before our time in power, a warehouse of expired personal protective equipment and other pandemic equipment. And we were in the process of having that destroyed because it was not usable and ordering new supplies when the pandemic struck. So with that, we had to literally chase personal pandemic equipment uh, across the globe because we needed it, as did almost every other country. And that was a very difficult time, first of all, trying to uh, find it from legitimate sources because there were a lot of sources that were not legitimate right, right, and right. making sure that it was in good shape. Uh, we didn't have any uh, large scale financial losses because we always put money into an escrow account uh, so that the goods could be examined before any money changed hands. And Ontario avoided any large scale problems of that sort. 
No, I mean, hindsight is easy, right? Um, but at the time, uh, what were you most worried about? I mean, I mean, obviously, the health of Ontarians would be would be top. But we look back at long term care, hospital problems, uh, being able to trace to contract trace. I mean, all those things were going to be huge and un. I mean, things we hadn't really done before. But when you were, if you take yourself back to three years ago, what was what was concern number one? Well, honestly, everything became a concern very quickly. But initially, I was very concerned for the health care of Ontarians because we received some projections very early on about the potential loss of life. And so my entire ministry was determined to do whatever we could to uh, to save lives. I mean, there's been criticism. I think a lot of governments have faced criticism over the responses. There was no perfect response as far as we can tell. Uh, but tell me about some of the things that you would, if you could do them differently now, what what are some of the things, if you look back at then, would you have done differently? I know there was some, you know, there was consultants brought in to try to, you know, create an all government, uh, you know, a complete government response. Uh, there was some criticism of delays that I know you don't necessarily agree with. But if you, with the benefits of hindsight, What's one or two things that you might actually go back and say, I think I would have done that differently? I wouldn't say anything structurally. I would say that we did have to work, as as you would expect, with a number of different ministries, including uh, finance, because we were always asking for more money, long-term care, education, colleges and universities, solicitor general, all of those. So it was pulling everyone together as quickly as possible to be able to respond. But I am very proud of the work that was done by all of the people in the Ministry of Health. It uh, would have been easy in some of those circumstances for them to have not agreed on certain courses of action and for things to be delayed. But to their great credit, they worked together extremely well so that they we were able to respond. Of course, you always want to res- respond even faster, but I, I think we did respond within a very good time frame in large part to the actions of everybody within the Ministry of Health. Uh, if you look at that, I know there must be a hundred things to talk about, but if you look at those very stressful three years and it's certainly those early months, what is one thing you think people in the public don't know? One thing that about the work that you were doing that has never been properly explained? I think what some people might not have understood, we did try to explain it, was the reason why we had to shut businesses and schools and so on down. That was a really very difficult decision to make uh, because it affected the lives of so many people, especially in certain uh, industries like uh, restaurants, bars, restaurants, and so on, that had to close their businesses down. That was very hard for me to recommend to my caucus and cabinet members because I knew that this was going to have a very serious effect on so many people. And it was very, very difficult for the premier to do that too, because we all wanted to keep things open. But we it was the, the medical experts told us that we needed to do that to stop the spread and make sure that our healthcare system would be able to treat all of the people that needed hospitalization. So it was it was necessary for a number of reasons, but I, I think that there are some people that will still wonder why did you have to close things down? But it, but that was why. Yeah. Do you still think it was the right call? I mean, I know we've uh, a lot of people have been relitigating this, and not to use a lawyerly term, but relitigating this after the fact. Do you still think it was the right call, given that what you knew then? Yes. Uh, yes, I do think it was the right call. It was very unfortunate to have to do that, but I do think it was the right call. Are you surprised at all about how much it has been relitigated? I mean, we hear other, you know, lots of people weighing in about about the impact of those closures and so on. And it feels like sometimes the the other half of that conversation that we all understood well back then, which was the fear, has kind of been forgotten. Well, I think that people, for the most part, I mean, grudgingly, in some cases, accepted that it was necessary. But what surprises me even more than that is the reaction of some people to our vaccination efforts. How so? The um, It was the fact that so many people were opposed to a vaccination. They felt that it wasn't necessary, that it would have an impact on their immediate and future health. Mm-hmm. They were very opposed to vaccinations for children. 
And there were fairly significant protests about that. I know I had protests at my own home. So I I didn't really understand because it seemed to me that this was something that could, could save your life. It wouldn't prevent you from getting COVID, but if you did get COVID, you were far more likely to survive having been vaccinated than than not. But I, I still believe that that was necessary and important too. And that helped um, save many people's lives and also helped us to keep our hospital system working under tremendous strain, yes, but it allowed us to keep our hospital system working and able to admit the people that needed hospitalization. Uh, it's interesting you put it that way, uh, Christine, because you know your late husband was a longtime politician. You were a longtime politician. It felt like something happened during COVID where everything got very personal. And I can imagine for someone who'd seen so much politics over your life, that it must have been it must have been um, an uncomfortable situation to sort of feel like, even as health minister, that uh, regardless of what the decisions were being made or who opposed them or who agreed with them, that somehow it became personal, like showing up at your house. Well, I, and I, I mean, that was unfortunate, but we were, of course, we dealt with that. But I, I think it was just such an intense emotional time for so many people that there were very strong feelings aroused by it and um, very strong positions taken by people. And um, I can understand that. But my job was to do what I could to save people's lives and to make sure that we had uh, both the the vaccination efforts uh, available to anybody that wanted a vaccination and that we had hospital capacity to care for people that needed to be hospitalized by reason of COVID or whatever else brought them to hospital. So I uh, needed to listen to the medical experts. I'm not a doctor myself. And that's what I did. And that's what I brought forward to my colleagues and and recommended. So you can't be afraid of opposition in the face of something that is clear to medical professionals. They were doing their job and I needed to do mine. Was there ever an indication uh, when you were there that, I mean, I think even in the tail end days of when you were there, this was certainly unfolding, but just how much strain the healthcare system was already under and how much more of a strain this was going to put it under, not just then, but even today. Yes, we did know that uh, Ontario was under capacity in terms of the number of hospital beds. And we uh, were in the process of increasing the numbers across the province in locations where there was a rapidly growing population or, or the facilities were just not big enough to begin with. And there's a, a, a large a capital campaign going on now to build more beds. But during the course of, of COVID, we created over another 3,000 beds mm-hmm. in our hospitals. And then, of course, we also had the um, orange air system transporting patients from one part of the province to another in order to make sure that we were able to use every single available hospital bed wherever it was. So, yes, we did know that we were underserved in terms of hospital beds. We were in the process of fixing that. But then COVID came along and we had to act in a hurry in order to create those hospital beds to uh, be able to care for the people that needed care in hospital. When you look at what's unfolding right now in terms of the continued fight between the provinces and Ottawa for funding, um, are you when you look at what's happening, I, I sure, I'm sure you can read this better than the rest of us. Uh, do you think there's a deal coming? Do you think we're going to see some movement finally on this on this front to the to the interests of everyone? I actually do think a deal is coming. I'm very encouraged by by what I'm hearing. And I think that politicians, and and I know that Premier Ford has done this, is listening to people when they say, we we want you to work with the federal government, don't keep arguing for a bigger share, talk about what the priorities are and and work to find a solution. And it seems to me that's what the uh, provincial and territorial governments are doing. And the federal government seems very willing to to listen and work with them as well. You've been out of politics for a little bit now. How How is it? Do you miss it? I know it must have been exhausting over the years that you were handling the crisis, but do you miss, uh, what would you miss about it? <laughs> There's a better question. What do you miss about it? 
I, I miss a lot of the the policy discussions. I miss right. looking at innovation in healthcare because I think that's what we really need to do. I think COVID has shown us that, uh, and many have said this, that the status quo uh, isn't working anymore and we need to find a different way forward. So I would certainly miss those discussions uh, within the Ministry of Health because there's a lot of good ideas out there. Well, Christine Elliott, thank you so much for your time today and for uh, offering your unique perspective on this day three years ago. Wonderful. Thanks so much for uh, for having me, Ben. I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm not an obsessive cleaner around the kitchen, but I do like to clean. I do clean. I try to clean as I go. You know, some people like to make a huge mess and then clean it all up afterwards. Some people like to clean as they go when making a meal. But I think we all make the basic mistakes of not washing our hands often enough while we're cooking, while we're handling certain things. I mean, it takes time. You're in a rush. You get lazy, right? Um, But foodborne illnesses are a real thing. Uh, You can avoid them if you take precautions, more or less, Uh, especially, obviously, when when cooking at home. Um, And that's what people do. There are researchers uh, around the world, but certainly researchers in this case in the U.S., including a Canadian from Toronto, who um, really try to figure out what it is that we do in the kitchen, how we make meals, and how it is that things get contaminated, how we get sick, how we essentially make ourselves sick in some ways. Um, And so they started to try to figure out what is the most contaminated thing in the kitchen after preparing a certain meal, and we'll get to that. Now, If you had to ask me point blank what was the most contaminated, I'd probably think, you know, the cutting board, the handle of the frying pan, maybe the garbage bin. Uh, There are different things around the kitchen that seem obvious, like the obvious answer. This is one I would have never have thought of. And yet it makes so much sense when you hear what it is. In fact, the researchers themselves were surprised that it wasn't a surface like a countertop or a cutting board or even a trash can. Um, so again, they tried to figure out the prevalence of cross-contamination across a variety of kitchen surfaces during a meal preparation. That's how they did this. What was the most contaminated? Ben Chapman is a food safety specialist and professor in the Department of Agriculture and Human Sciences at North Carolina State University. He was the senior author of this study. He happens to be from Toronto and he joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, of course, is originally from Toronto. I should point that out. <laughs> so there is a Canadian connection here. This is a fascinating study because it's it is so counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of this for us really surprised us. So I've been doing food safety research for the last uh, fifteen or twenty years, and what I've really been interested in is trying to figure out what happens when people prepare a meal. And for most of my career where where our field was was asking people how do you do this right Right. so you do you use a thermometer do you wash your hands and and we we now have sort of advanced things a little bit we actually built kitchens to bring um just regular everyday people into uh like a simulated home kitchen and we ask them to prepare meals and and we get some surprises sometimes like uh spices yeah. Right. Yeah, that was, I mean, this is a controlled environment, I guess. So you get to carry out these uh, these experiments or at least do this research in a more in a more controlled way. I and mean, that's repeating myself. So what did you set out to do with this one? How did it work? What we wanted to do, I guess I'll step back. A lot of why we're interested in how people prepare food is so we can really give tools, whether it's educational tools, messages, understand where we need within the food system to apply like our best practices to reduce the chance that people get foodborne illness. And to be able to really do that, we have a, have to have a better understanding of what what people actually do. So for instance, we this this project was one of a series of five that we did where we brought people in to kitchens to better understand what those practices look like. And, and our goal was to say, okay, we don't, we know almost nothing about how people prepare ground turkey burgers. And and I know that sounds really like specific, it does, but yeah. It, yeah, but it's like a growing area of food consumption. You know, very, very familiar with hamburgers, but as our food consumption patterns have changed over time, people are utilizing different foods to make burgers out of. And 
turkey burgers specifically has been just this growth area. So we wanted to know, are there specific risks associated with making this type of food? Right. And I imagine that would apply to other forms of food as well. Now, when one thinks of sort of cross-contamination and the germiest, I saw that verb used a lot or that term used a lot in the headlines about this, the germiest spots, one always thinks of the cutting board, right? Trash can lids, faucets, the places where you put your hands a lot. That wasn't the case. What happened? Yeah, I mean, that, you, you highlighted the places where we thought we were going to see it. What we're really focused on with our observational studies is watching hands and watching cutting boards and watching knives. In in this study, we what we did was put a non-pathogen virus essentially into this into this food, and people were not going to eat it. They they you know they were we really just were understanding where it would go, and so we were able to see all of a sudden. In this particular recipe, there was a lot of hand movement after forming patties and while forming patties to these spice jars. So we decided, well, let's go see if we find what we put into the turkey there. And, and we did at a much higher concentration and higher rate than any other place in the in the kitchen. Yeah, it was considerable, right? It was. And, you know, I think I've, I feel like I have to be really careful about the results of this. To me... It's not about like sending everybody in a panic to their pantries and decontaminating, you know, all the of their spice jars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Montreal steak spice or whatever is there. Yeah, exactly. Um, because fortunately, most of the pathogens that we would see in ground turkey or ground beef don't really survive for a long time without moisture and without, um, you know, some food. They want, they need those things to grow. But what it did tell us was if you're using those spices, multiple times in a day where there certainly could be persistence of of a pathogen it's really important to know that right and so so you can like for us our big takeaway is when we tell people hey it's really important to wash your hands when you're making food it's maybe not enough it's not it's not specific enough it's if you're touching other things during that meal preparation after you handle raw meat or raw meat packaging then you really need to wash your hands before that step that seems to be the underlying message, right? Is we're simply not washing our hands enough while preparing food, just specifically, well, obviously in this case. Yeah, and and I think we tell people that it's important to wash our hands, but we don't often tell them exactly when and where and why. And that's what our big takeaway was: was you know, okay, but think about like it's you know Labor Day or it's Victoria Day weekend. All of a sudden, uh, people are outside and they're barbecuing hamburgers. I think it's important for us to come back and say, let's tell people while you're doing that specific thing, if you're handling spices, if you're handling, you know, Worcestershire sauce, then you got to think about where your hands were before and, and, and mix it in a hand washing step. Yeah. I don't even, I can't even imagine what the pepper grinder and salt shaker beside the stove at my place are like. I mean, <laughs> now that now that you're mentioning, because you're right, when you're preparing something, you often reach for those things just as you're cooking, right? So you've probably just handled whatever it is you're handling, and then you're using these certain items on it. And obviously that would be a, a big risk of contamination. Yeah. It, I mean, it is. And I guess the, the thing that, that I always keep coming back to is we have this, this hand-washing step in the middle that can really reduce risk. So, you know, once you're done making a meal, if you don't know what had happened to that salt, you know, pepper grinder or, or salt grinder or salt shaker before, that before you actually go eat, it's really, really important to to wash your hands. Right. And, and, and you found, because you did some other, you've talked about all the other studies you've been doing. I, I gather there was another one in 2021. I don't know if it was yours. I think so, where almost everyone failed to successfully wash their hands at the times they should have, like almost every, almost down to the person. Yeah, like it was like 3% of people that we looked at. We're, we're doing pretty large studies, at least for, for our field, where we're bringing in somewhere between 200 and 400 people. And, and asking them to do the same thing, you know, to get a sense of the variability. Absolutely. Some of our other studies, we looked at, you know, a practice that I think has been really common for a long time, it actually goes back to Julia Child, but it's like washing chicken or right. washing poultry. And again, the reason why we do these studies is if we ask people, do you do this? People do say yes, but we don't have a good sense of what it actually means and where yeah. the contamination goes. So when we ask people to just act normally, recruit them to come be part of a cooking study and see how they do things, even the way that I thought people would be washing chicken isn't the way, like I got it right, maybe 
85% of the time, but there's 15% of the population out there that's doing it in a totally different way than I could have imagined, which changes the risk profile right. um, as well. I can't imagine there's more than one, one way to wash a chicken, but obviously there has to be. There are, there are people, some people will fill up the sink basin and just soak it in there. Some people do it in a, um, like in a, in a bowl. Um, my, my version, what I thought we were going to see was turn on the tap and place the chicken yeah. underneath it and rinse it a off. shower, and, a shower, not a bath, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And we, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's, I will, I will probably steal that when I talk about okay. this again, but I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And it, each of those actions lead to different types of risks and different types of messages that we need to have for, you know, just for the, the public and meal preparation. It's such an interesting field because you're right. So much of what we eat, we eat at home. So much of where we, I mean, we often associate uh, getting ill with restaurants and so on, because that's where we read about it most, right? But at home, I mean, home clearly is where most of the damage is done. And ultimately, we need to be better informed about how to make sure that we're taking the nest, at least the basics, the basic necessary precautions when we cook. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't I couldn't agree more. And and I think from you know much of the work that we've done, been doing in this area, it really are it really is the basics of hand washing, cleaning and sanitizing the the surfaces that you're putting you know raw meats on, and then using thermometers to check the the temperature for for safety. And those are the things that often are the the things that we see missed. So yeah, it's it there's no. Uh, it's a different type of science. It's not rocket science, I guess, um, no. as we do this work. <laughs> Still, I mean, the one thing is that we know, I mean, it's rare, right? You could, you could sort of cook haphazardly for most of your life and never get sick. But we know that when people do, certainly people in the more vulnerable groups, you know, kids, the older elderly people, people with the compromised immune systems, that it can be serious. Yeah, it absolutely can. And and you're right. Like we we have you know, billions of servings of food a year in North America that don't make people sick. And and we have millions of servings that do. It doesn't happen all the time, not with every meal. And we're fortunate, but we do see, you know, I think the estimate is, is somewhere in between like seven and 11 million Canadians a year get sick from foodborne illness. And so that's, that's a sizable amount of the population. Fortunately, it's just, you know, on average once a year. This is a fascinating field you found yourself in. Do you still, <laughs> do, do, I mean, it must change the way you behave around around your own kitchen and with your family as well when they know that you do this for a living. It does. And it it uh, changes the my social interactions with people I play hockey with and and uh, that hang out with, uh, you know, other parents of my my kids because they know the the stuff that I do. You know, ultimately, my my big goal in in and doing research in this area and, and doing like communication around it is that we should be talking about foodborne illness and food safety more, and that these are all preventable illnesses. And it just sometimes takes a little bit of focus. It's not difficult. It, it's not an area that we can't do, but it, but it isn't. And I, I want to be clear. Sometimes the basics are not simple. There, there's, it's complicated. It's like, you know, when we're, when you're making that, that meal and you reach for that spice container, you've added a complication step here where, right. oh, I need to go wash my hands in the middle of a lot of other things that are happening. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's just good to know. Cause I think everyone needs reminding of these things. It's so easy to forget, right? It's so easy to forget this stuff or just sort of say, ah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> oh, ben, ben Chapman, thank you so much. Thank you. Course, it is our night uh, that we call Journalism Corner. We invite a reporter who's done some interesting work of late uh, to talk to them about their story. And this is a really interesting one because my next guest traveled all the way to Thailand to dig into this one, uh, to Phuket, a place people will probably know from holidays, but uh, that's not why she was there. This was a working, a working trip. Um, 32-year-old Jimmy Sandu was gunned down at a rented, rented luxury villa in Phuket uh, and, and quickly, quickly focus shifted 12,000 kilometers away back here to the lower mainland of British Columbia. Now, Sindhu was a high-profile gangster in the Vancouver area, a member of the notorious United Nations gang. He'd been born in India but in Canada since childhood but had been deported for serious criminality in 2016. But still, it was believed had a lot of power and influence back in BC. It sort of speaks to the transnational um, nature of a lot of organized crime, even local organized crime now. So who would want him dead? And who would put, and who pulled the trigger better yet? Investigators quickly identified two former members of the Canadian military 
a suspected hitman. And there are more twists and turns to this story than I can even begin to explain now, and thus the trip to Thailand to try to figure out more about it. Uh, and it speaks again to many different aspects of organized crime in this country now, as Kim Boland found out, and Vancouver Suns crime reporter Kim Boland joins me now. Thanks so much for your time on this. Thanks so much for having me. I hope I did that some justice in the intro, but you were uh, well, just yeah, it's so a complicated tale involving many ever? people and at least two countries, if not more. But yeah, we've got, you know, we've had this local gang problem here on the lower mainland of BC for a number of years, uh, but it has intensified, you know, with all kinds of brazen shootings at airports. Uh, at the airport of Vancouver International of a colleague, a friend of Jimmy Sandu's, and that was in 2021. And I remember I mentioned uh, when that uh, brazen shooting at Vancouver Airport happened and a United Nations gang member was killed, I mentioned that the dead guy was close to Jimmy Sandu. And lo and behold, I got an email from a representative of Sandu, not a lawyer, but a friend, saying he would like it if you would remove his name from that story. Right? Right. And I said to the person at the time, look, you know, he's a high-profile person. He was connected to this guy. So, no, I won't remove it. And within a few months, of course, I was covering Jimmy Sandu's murder on the other side of the world. Um, yeah. And it's a fascinating case. And it was a privilege to go to Thailand and talk to people there, uh, investigators there, who have done a fairly remarkable job of putting this case together with the help of the RCMP. And we now have one remaining suspect who is fighting his extradition to Thailand, uh, a second suspect, as you said, with the Canadian military, at one point in time, died in a plane crash in April in Ontario. Um, And through my investigation in Thailand, I learned of a third suspect, also with links to the Canadian military, also with links to the Wolfpack gang. Uh, This person is not charged yet. They're believed to have left Canada uh, because they know that they're a suspect. And I think there'll be even more interesting stories to come. Indeed. I mean, I spent some time covered doing working in Thailand, and it was, I was always amazed by how easy it was to get out. Not always, but, but when you go through the right channels, it's really easy to get access to, to investigators. They'll talk to you, which isn't always the case here in Canada. I know you've got great sources, but not always the case. No, it was kind of amazing. And, um, you know, we've got some of the video that I got from the Royal Thai Police on our website with my story. But we actually have, like, video that they released of the murder because it was in outside of this villa connected to a hotel complex where I stayed when I went over there because I thought, well, I'm going to have to stay in that hotel if I'm going to poke around and find out what was going on at the time. So I did. And you can see the surveillance cameras right there in the same spot. Of course, no one was monitoring this CCTV footage. Uh, Otherwise, this murder likely could have been prevented because the suspects were captured on camera two days before the murder, putting a tracker under Sandu's car. Uh, they were wow. spotted uh, the, the following day coming back to check on that tracker or possibly changing it. You know, there was, uh, you know, the, we don't know for sure, but they were seen or they're, they're featured on the CCTV footage. And then on February 4th of 2022 at uh, 1032, they come popping out from around uh, the corner of this, uh, through this little walkway that I walked through, you know, less than a year later. And uh, they uh, were captured shooting him. Uh, 19 times, 10 bullets struck wow. him, and he, he died. He wasn't found until the next day uh, by hotel staff. So it was very brazen. Uh, the suspects then fled out of just the normal um, international airport, both in Phuket and in Bangkok, right? So they yeah. were, you know, you have to, well, you've been to Thailand. You have to give yeah. your fingerprints. I've never had to give my fingerprints at an airport Yeah, they're before, strict. Right? They're strict. They're strict. I mean, and, and Bangkok's strict. international airport is, is you, know, a, you know, a world-class airport. It's a nice yeah. spot. Yeah, and of course, Advanced. they take your photo. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, I don't know. If I was, like, going to a country to do something as horrific as this, I, you'd you'd think that you would catch on pretty quickly that you're not going to get away with it. But for whatever reason, um, I'm hearing the payout was very big. And allegedly these uh, two Canadians who worked as sort of paramilitary specialists after getting out of uh, the Canadian military. Uh, So the fellow who's fighting his extradition, Matthew Dupre, he's currently in jail in Alberta. 
and um, a judge there has ruled already at the first level anyway uh, that the case is strong enough that he should be extradited. Of course, he's going to appeal that. Um, you know, but he, he sort of boasted on his own Facebook page about um, being a sniper in this uh, paramilitary, um, you know, organization yeah. working in both Iraq and Syria, post-military. So this is someone supposedly with some serious skills when it comes to firearms. Yeah, I mean, your story reads a bit like the plot of uh, of a Netflix series. I mean, it does it does in well, some ways because tell me, yeah, it's... Yeah, tell me a bit about Jimmy Sandu because I, I I mean we know a, a little bit about him, but he he had been deported. He lived most of his life here, I gather, but was never a Canadian citizen. So when he got into trouble, they ended up he was deported. How did he find himself in Phuket? What was he doing? He was sort of bouncing around the region. He was bouncing around the region. Interestingly, like, I knew him when he was a much younger guy. Um, you know, I covered his extradition, or pardon me, his deportation hearing. You know, I was the only reporter there down in that uh, library tower in Vancouver. And, you know, we got a little video of him when he was going through. He wasn't very happy about it. And he was trying to portray himself as a completely reformed person, saying he had nothing to do with gangs. Uh, he had a beautiful wife who was there with him at the hearing. And, um, you know, just really spun this tale, you know, that he was out of this life. And, of course, the government had other evidence that he was still involved. And ultimately, um, he was forced out of the country in early uh, 2016. The hearing was in late 2015, right? So, yeah, he, he was just a bit of a punk when he grew up in Abbotsford. He had been sent from India at the age of seven to live with his grandmother. You know, the idea is he'd have more opportunities here, and he got into trouble. Uh, first as a kid in the school system, then he became kind of a gang associate, got involved in drug lines and kind of worked his way up. Uh, but him and another associate who's now based in Dubai, you know, growing up in small town Abbotsford, ended up basically as international drug smugglers. Like it's kind of amazing when you think that a lot of these guys like flunk out of school or get too, into too much trouble and quit school end up being, you know, successful business people, but on the wrong side of the law, right? So, yeah. um, you know, when he was deported, within a couple of years, despite, you know, all of his protests in Canada that he was a reformed person and no longer involved in crime, he was arrested in India and charged in a very big drug operation where he was running ketamine factories, if you will, uh, to produce the drug illegally for export. So he was in custody won an appeal so he could get bail. As soon as he was out on bail, he ducked. He was gone. He was out of India. And he went to Vietnam, was spending a lot of time in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, though some also in Dubai, and had been traveling in and out of Phuket, a little bit for pleasure, a little bit for business meetings. And some of his Canadian associates would go over there and meet with him. Uh, he rented this particular villa, very nice, you know, um, on Rawway Beach, kind of on the east coast of Phuket, uh, overlooking all the fish boats, the long tail boats, a very beautiful spot. And um, he rented it in November of um, 2021, but was sort of again in and out of both the country and the region. He was spotted uh, at a New Year's party, um, you know, December 31st, 2022, big fancy hotel in Bangkok, goes back uh, to Malaysia, flies in on a private plane again uh, to Thailand uh, just eight days before he was killed. So, uh, you know, again, was involved in organized crime uh, throughout Southeast Asia and still had Canadian connections. The Vancouver Sun's crime reporter Kim Boland is with us this half hour for our Journalism Corner. She's talking about an investigation that she's just wrapped up. There's a great story in the Vancouver Sun about this. It's about the murder of Jimmy Sandu uh, in Phuket uh, a while back now, about a year and a half ago, I think. I'm going to get that. Uh, I, I forgot to write the exact date. Robert, you've been February 4th of February 2022. 4th. So we're coming up to the first anniversary of it. That recently. And Kim's just back from Phuket, actually, looking into this. Uh, we talked a bit about Jimmy Sandu in the last half hour, as well as the suspects. But the suspect, I mean, the investigation here is really interesting, because I think there is this presumption sometimes that you can commit this kind of crime in a country like Thailand, and you'll be able to get away with it because the police aren't competent. But that was not the case here, as these two Canadian suspects found out. No, without a doubt, you know, they made, you know, if in fact these two are the guys that actually did the shooting, the third suspect uh, was not someone who was there at the time but had been in Thailand 
And uh, the third suspect, the mystery suspect, I'll call him, I do know his name, but until that person is charged, I'm not going to give the name, is the one who's actually connected to the Wolfpack gang here in Canada. And, um, you know, my information, what I uncovered is that this Wolfpack gang, which is kind of a coalition, if you will, of gangsters, some of them are from the Hells Angels, some of them are from the Red Scorpions, and some of them are from the Independent Soldiers Gang. So all BC gangs that form this Wolfpack, which is now operational across the country and internationally, apparently, um, this gang is the one that put up the money for the murder of Jimmy Sandu and hired these hitmen uh, allegedly, and they went over there and committed this. They obviously had really good intelligence about where Jimmy would be. I mean, I stayed in that hotel. It's a little off the beaten track. It's a beautiful big complex. Um, but where he was staying, the villa, was sort of on the furthest east side of this property, and you had to basically go past 200 units on a small hotel road to find where he was, right? So it's not like you would stumble across him, you know, in the parking lot of a big hotel like in Vancouver or something. You know, they had very detailed information about where he was. So how did they get that, right? Did they pay someone in Thailand uh, to follow this guy from when he arrived at the airport? Did someone close to Jimmy Sandu betray him and pass this information along for money? Um, you know, these are still unanswered questions, but without a doubt, uh, the two alleged shooters left Canada, went over there. They got to Thailand on December 18th through uh, Dubai, um, and they um, waited around. They were in Phuket for basically a month before the murder, although they're also believed to have made their way up to Bangkok at one point in time and gotten the guns there and potentially met with this third suspect. So still unanswered questions. But you're right. There's this presumption maybe that the police there aren't competent. They did a really amazing job. Not only did they collect all this CCTV footage that, you know, uh, appears to implicate these guys, uh, they also got DNA. Uh, They found the firearms and uh, they had been tossed into the ocean Uh, just south of where this hotel was, right? And it was a spot where the tide goes out at low tide, 100 feet, right? So it was very easy uh, at low tide for these firearms to be found uh, in the days following the murder. Uh, They also saw them on CCTV going over a fence. One of them went under this barbed wire and cut himself. Then they found clothes uh, with blood, that match DNA in the rental cars that they rented in their own name. So, you know, on the face of it, it's a very compelling case with a lot of evidence. Yeah, that sounds like a very strong case. You also went uh, and did some looking into the suspects as well back here, back in Canada. Yeah, I did that right after the murder last February. Uh, I went up to Trail to look into where Gene Larkamp, he is the former military a man who died in the plane crash uh, while he was sort of on the run. Uh, I think they overloaded a small plane. They found some inexperienced pilots, and I think he was probably trying to make his way out of the country. Uh, But that plane unfortunately crashed near Sioux Lookout in Ontario in some bad weather on April 29th of last year, right after a major reward had been offered for Larkamp. But Larkamp had been breeding dogs in trail, and, uh, you know, we found out search warrants had been executed there. They'd been executed in Alberta and Sylvan Lake at Matt Dupre's house. And there was one executed in Ontario at the time uh, related to the third suspect. So went up, knocked on the door. There was nowhere. I mean, his place was so remote. It was on this hillside overlooking all of trail. It was a gorgeous view. Uh, but he was nowhere to be found uh, Seems to have left in a hurry. There was a lot of stuff around. You could tell that the police had been into the place. So I talked to his neighbors about, you know, they were all shocked. I mean, it's not every day that someone you've had casual conversations with ends up, you know, being an alleged hitman who's gone abroad to kill somebody, right? So they were pretty shocked. Uh, Matthew Dupre has quite a high-profile social media presence, uh, you know, was very upset at Trudeau and vaccine mandates and has all kinds of strong opinions. Uh, So it was easy to sort of look at him because, you know, people could look right now at his Facebook page and see a bunch of stuff. He's been in custody since last February. Um, So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I still don't know why people who serve this country in the military would think this was a legit thing to go do. Did they do it just for money if, in fact, they're guilty 
they haven't been convicted yet. We have to keep that in mind. Uh, but it's still pretty shocking allegation to think that, you know, we have people here plotting murders in other countries, hiring hitmen who then go and carry out murder plots. Yeah, I, I mean, the whole thing is, is the whole thing, again, it reads like it reads like something out of fiction. I guess the next steps are really the extradition hearing for Dupre and if we ever see another arrest. Yeah, I, I think we will see another arrest. I, I think that Dupre is probably going to get sent back to Thailand. Of course, one obstacle is always uh, that Canada doesn't want to extradite people to face trial in countries that have the death penalty uh, for any crime, whether it's a drug case or a murder case. Uh, when I interviewed the Major General with the Royal Thai Police, who is the you know, point person for extradition and international investigations, he told me that they've already reached an agreement that there will not be the death penalty if he's extradited there. So, you know, if that ends up being confirmed by a court in Canada, it kind of removes that obstacle, uh, you know, given that a judge has already reviewed the evidence that's been uh, described to her so far and said it's strong enough uh, to have this man extradited. Well, Kim Bolin, it's a fascinating tale. I recommend listeners go read it. It's called A Murder in Phuket, BC Gang Conflict Moves Overseas. Thanks so much for uh, for taking us through your journey, literally and figuratively. My, my pleasure. I hope to go back to cover a trial at some point, and uh, you can have me back on when I'm able to tell the rest of the story, because there's a lot more to it. Wow, there are already so many twists and turns. Kim, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure.